Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm glad to have you all with us for a brand new week here on Political Rewind. So as always, thank you uh, for joining us for the show today. I've been looking forward to this show for a long time uh, because we're going to be talking with uh, David Gergen, whose new book, Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made, is a really wonderful look at leadership. What makes great leaders? What are the traits? What are the qualities? Um, And he tells some wonderful stories about uh, people like FDR, Winston Churchill, John Lewis, and others. And we're going to get into all of that with him in a minute. Uh, David Gergen, um, many people already know, was an advisor, speechwriter to four U.S. presidents, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton. He's a professor of public service now and founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard um, his broadcasting career includes time at the McNeil Lehrer Report at PBS. He's a senior analyst for um, uh, CNN. Uh, so with all those credentials, what we can say, David, is you are a classic overachiever. Welcome to Political <laughs> Rewind. <laughs> Hardly, Bill, but I wanted to, uh, I'm so looking forward to this conversation with you and Patricia. Uh, and it's, uh, it's just good to be here. Well, I, you're very forthcoming about your age, so I don't think you'll mind if I say you and I are basically in the same age range. Um, uh-huh. I'm 75. You're you're a few uh-huh. years older. I so mean, we're well, the you're, you're just a young spring chicken. I'm 80. And listen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. We're we're the but we're the geezers on the show who ought to be <laughs> passing our. Oh, we should yeah. be handing off to people like Patricia Murphy the AJC political reporter and political columnist. You read her on Wednesdays and Sundays uh, in the newspaper, and she oversees the jolt every day at AJC.com. Patricia, welcome. I'm so glad to have you here, too. Oh, good morning. Thank you for having me, Bill. It's such an honor to be with David Gergen today, and I'm proud to fly the flag for Gen X. Not a millennial, uh, but... All right, Patricia, <laughs> let's hear it for Gen X. You know, that's the sandwich generation, Bill. People, a lot of people who are Gen Xers feel like they've been uh, passed over in terms of national office, and they're anxious to play more a larger role, and I think they should over time. Well, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about in terms of your belief that it really is time to hand the reins of power off yes. to younger people. And I want to get to that in just a minute. Sure. Uh, but, but David, we, we have to start with Buffalo. Um, you talk in, in your book about how younger people uh, in this century have seen so many hardships. They've seen uh, two recessions. They've seen mass shootings. They've seen other tragedies, and they've had to absorb all that. Well, yes, the, this weekend in Buffalo, David, we saw another example of that. Ten people uh, shot yeah. by a self-proclaimed white supremacist who believes in the replacement theory, which we know is fiction. David? Uh, well, it's, it is so um, discouraging sometimes, isn't it, and so frightening um, that when we see 
these young people especially you know, sort of dipped into into hatred and sort of coming up and shooting people is just it, it, first of all it also is uh, i think shows us the double nature <clears throat> the double edged sword of social media. On one hand, social media is providing access for lots and lots of people who weren't, did not have a voice in our society, and there's a, there's a place on social media where you can have a responsible conversation. But there are also places, there are dark places in, in social media where you can find this, this hatred spewing, and then young people buy into it, and nobody knows. Their parents don't fully understand what's going on. I, I, in this case, in Buffalo, you had to wonder, 18 years old, um, he had been diagnosed as someone who was prone to violence. Uh, people knew that. Why in the world do we have a system that allows an 18-year-old like that to have a gun that can, that can murder so many people sort of, you know, just at, at almost in random? Uh, and it's also true that this, I, I, in some ways, it's, it's good to bring to the surface um, just how loony and irresponsible it is to have something like the Great Replacement Theory floating around. That that theory goes all the way back to early 20th century during the Jim Crow era when um, <clears throat> there was a guy named Bilbo. You may remember this guy coming up in American Mississippi. history. Mississippi. He was twice twice governor of Mississippi. He was a U.S. senator. Um, he there, there were possibilities he might have gone on had he not had a, you know health problems that took him out. But Bilbo was the one who popularized this notion of a great replacement theory that the all the immigrants who were coming in, we had, we had a heavy uh, load of them coming in, or a heavy stream of them, um, and th- that they would replace white people, and that would be, you know, that would be the decline of, of Western civilization. That was the argument. But you find that people arguing that today, like this kid, but there are others who have been um, been putting it forward, and it underlies some of the, the tensions we're having over uh, over white supremacy as well as over immigration. I saw a survey out the other day that as many as one third of Americans think they may they may they're worried that they might be displaced and replaced uh, by incoming immigrants. I found it so interesting in your book. You did actually talk about. Um, gun violence and the way that the explosion and gun violence in our country created a generation of activists at Parkland High School, and then those activists inspired Greta Thunberg. And so in a way, I was really taken by the way you described a crisis or a crucible moment as really being essential to leadership. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Well, we're we're talking about um, a couple of things here now that um, we we have an environment which is um, ha- it has been very very rough uh, on on the young, um, and and the, this eighteen year old was sort of a product of that. But it's also true that history has shown that that uh, really hard times um, can also inspire. Uh, go back to Abigail Adams. She, she wrote a famous letter to her son, John Quincy, when he was a teenager. And she basically argued that adversity brings forward statesmen and, and noble people because the resistance is there. And you see this time and again in our history, and I think we're seeing it again now, that the, the hard times that so many in the younger generation have faced uh, has, really, uh, has really spurred them on to say they want to get in the arena 
uh, and they want to make a difference. There are two big streams of people coming into the arena now who are young, whom I think are so promising and give us hope. You know, we're in the midst of all of this exhaustion and people sort of wringing their hands in the sense that we were on a downhill slide that was irreversible. Well, the young people are sending a signal. They're not ready to give up. They want to, they want to see if they can't bring change. You see this, I think, especially in these two groups. One is the veterans who've been coming back from Afghanistan and, and Iraq. They have been peeling off their uniforms and saying, okay, well, we helped to save these countries overseas. Now let's save America. And they're starting to run for office, and, and not only in Congress, but in lower, lower levels and as, as mayors, as, as city board, school board members, and things like that. You see a lot of them now giving up, take, giving up the military, but taking up the cause of, of civic reform. And I think that's terrific. And in, in the, in the Congress, uh, I'm involved with a, with, a, with a group called With Honor. I'm, I'm chairman of their advisory board, and it's a nonprofit that we uh, try to identify recruit and encourage and help to prepare people to run for Congress on both sides of the aisle. Uh, and there are like 20, 25 people now in Congress who come through that process, and they're strengthening the center. You know, uh, Patricia, I think you worked for Sam Nunn way back when, and this is the kind of thing that Sam Nunn would, would strongly support. They're trying to rebuild the center of American politics, and they're also trying to bring back national service, which Sam Nunn was, was very much in favor of. And so you have... On one hand, the military folks, and on the other hand, we have something that is very familiar in Georgia with Stacey Abrams. We have a lot of people of color, especially black women, who are taking the moral high ground and I think guiding us in a, in a very positive direction. I don't share the politics uh, of, of AOC. She's to the left of me. Um, and I don't share the politics of some of the other people. But I celebrate, and I think we should all celebrate the fact that, that people of color are getting in the arena, putting forward their ideas, competing on, on for, for, for space and for, for power, I think that's extremely healthy. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad to see it. But I, I, I do think that uh, young people who have started the Me Too movement, for example, you know, young black woman did that, or the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, that's three young black women came together and created um, Black Lives Matter. So you see, I think we see glimmers of hope on a variety of different ways that amidst all of the grief and the anger and the resentment and the discouragement we face with a place like Buffalo, uh, there are other things happening in our society that can, can give us hope. And you also write about how technology has really um, empowered and activated younger people. And uh, for somebody like you, I think it's so interesting for you to be writing this book because um, it creates leadership lessons from people outside of the institutions that you yeah. are so well-known to be a part of. But what does it mean to you as somebody who is a leader and has spent so much time training leaders to also have these leaders bubbling up from the grassroots who, um, what are the strengths they bring to that and what are the areas that you think leadership lessons could really strengthen their future? Well, I, I, uh, the, some of the young people coming up right now, they're bubbling up. I love, I love that phrase. Um, the, um, I, I think their, their strengths are that they're, um, they're very disciplined. Uh, they're very, very um, uh, focused on trying to make a difference, and they don't really, they really don't want to be in the arena if they can't make a difference, but they can, and they know that, and they're going for it. And I think they're patient. They they realize change does not come overnight. You just took it's not a light switch. You just can't flip it on and flip it off. 
it takes long periods of time. You know, look how long it took women to get the right to vote, for goodness sakes. You know, Seneca Falls was way, 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 way back there in, in the past, you know, 1848, as I recall. And it took till the 1920s to get the vote for women. So it, it's, it's and look how long it's taken us to really be serious about race, it, you know, all the way into the 60s. If we, if we, we went a full century where race, where we had a racial quality to our to our history, and we still have, as, as illustrated in Buffalo, but the number of people who are racist today is less, much less than it used to be. We should recognize that as well. This is a society, after all, going all the way back to the Civil War, in which thousands and thousands of people volunteered to fight to protect us from uh, uh, racial injustices, to, to help sleep, free, uh, free the slaves, to make a better life. So there, there is a lot of movement toward the Stacey Abrams of the world. Um, which I think has been quite healthy. So um, I, I do want to talk about the environment in which you write this book today. Sure. So, um, and by that I mean, um, you talk about the um, aspects of uh, leadership, what what a, a young person must do, cultivate within her yes. or himself to sure. become true leaders. And yep. you talk about c- character. You talk about courage. Yes. Um, you talk about having a moral, finding your moral center. And, and of course, David, you write these things, and there are some beautiful examples in here of people who did that in our history, and I want to talk about those at some point. Uh, sure. but, but right now, given what we're dealing with in the world of Donald Trump, the big lie, Republicans yes. who are, um, are paying a, a, a fealty to a Donald Trump by perpetuating that, where where does moral and morality, courage, character fit in right now? It's a long discussion. <clears throat> Let me just say that uh, I do think that ultimately many of the issues we face are moral issues. Um, the inequities in our society, the gaps in wealth and in, you know capacities and the gaps we face between blacks and whites on terms of how long people live on average. Ultimately, we, we, we don't want to replace Jim Crow by a sort of hidden system of, of, of prejudice and discrimination. We, we need to get it right out there on the table and deal with it and get it behind us. Um, and that's what I think the responsibility, and that's what young, younger, the gener- younger generation wants to do. Uh, I, I'm, I'm persuaded, as you, as, you, as you said, Bill, I'm persuaded that it's time to pass the torch um, to younger generations, starting with gen- Generation X. Uh, Patricia is a noble figure in that, in that group. Um, <laughs> and, and, and moving on to millennials and Generation Z, you know, the younger people of today. Um, the, the, the Generation X were people born essentially between 1965 and 1980. So you can see that they're, you know, they're, they're in middle age right now, but they haven't had the kind of responsibility they deserve. They haven't had a time at bat that they deserve. Um, and I think that's part of what we ought to be shifting. And I think us ulcers, you know, ought to step back. We ought to, you know, I, as I, I just turned 80, and I can just tell you that, I don't think we have quite the spring in our steps that we once did. I don't. Uh, my judgment is, I hope, good, but I, I think it's probably a time when I certainly had a better memory. 
you know, I wander into my bedroom sometimes, and I wonder, well, what am I doing in here? What was I supposed to be looking for? <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand uh, that completely, yeah. David. <laughs> um, and so, uh, uh, you know, so that, that's that, that's difficult. And I and I think, but I do think those of us who are older still have a role to play. Um, we still can be great mentors. We still can work with young people. We can help to prepare them. We can help to educate them. We can inspire them. I just don't think we ought to be running big organizations in the same way. I think, you know, especially in in our politics, you know, the Congress, we have a huge number of people who are quite old serving in Congress, serving in the presidency. And we're going to have, mm-hmm. you know, a, we may have a race in 2024 for president, in which Trump versus Biden and whoever wins is going to be in his 80s uh, when he governs, when he tries to govern. And that's I, I don't think that's a I don't think that's a appropriate uh, place for, you know, I think we need I think we need people who are a little younger in, in offices like that. And that goes. Yeah, for, I think when it. Yeah. Go, Go ahead. ahead finish your sentence. Honey. No, it's fine. Well, all I was going to say, I think those of us who are, you know, baby boomers in your World War II generation, uh, we're just tenaciously yeah. holding on. It's as if yeah. we still believe we should be running the world, and it's very difficult for us to uh, take a back seat. You obviously have moved to a place where you're willing to do that, but 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 baby boomers particularly just don't want to give things up, and we have not given the ideals we started with in the 60s. Done a very I, good I, job I agree with that. With the I, world I, in I, which I think we, we live. <clears throat> I think we recently ought to look back to the World War II generation and hear their stories and see what they did because that was that was a role model in many ways. It wasn't perfect. It was the World War II veterans essentially are uh, capsulized by the presidents who represented them. We had presidents from John F. Kennedy through George H. W. Bush who were what we call World War II presidents. They came of age during the war, and most of them served. Every single one of those seven presidents wore a military uniform. Every single one you know, was giving back to the country and put the country first. Um, and as a result, we had from those, I think that was a very fine generation. They weren't perfect. They gave us Vietnam. They gave us Watergate. So, you know, those are two big strikes against them. But if you look at the totality of their contributions and where we wound up, the legacy they left behind when they left the stage in the late 80s and early 90s, that's when that's when many of them left the stage. That's when the baton passed before. And when they left, we were the strongest nation since ancient Rome in terms of our economy, in terms of our military strength, in terms of our cultural uh, uh, innovation, in terms of innovation more generally. You know, we we were right up there on top. And today, where are we? Well, in many different measures, we're like number 10 or 15 or number 20. And, you know, we have cascading uh, crises coming off, uh, coming off. And we're, there's, 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 nobody seems to be able to control our, our destiny. And I so I think we need some younger people to bring in fresh blood and fresh vision and fresh commitment and fresh energy. You know, there there's a tendency now... With, the, with some of the older generations say we can't we can't fix this let's just put a band-aid on it or let's kick the can down the road uh, we can't keep doing that on the environment for example we all know that this the damage could be irreversible in the next few years um, so I, I think this is a quite serious issue about who who is in charge of our future what is the next tactically for Democrats, do you think? Because Nancy Pelosi, I have heard her say so many times, 
no one gives you power. You have to come take it. And there you is concern. Yeah. yeah. And there's concern inside the Democratic caucus that Pelosi is generally keeping it together. They don't see the next Democratic huh. leader who can do that. And so there's a risk to handing the reins over. So uh, that's what, a, that's a very good uh, point. I, Patricia, I think that's a very good point. <clears throat> but uh, eventually the reins are going to pass. You, you know, uh, they're, they're, you just look at the timetables, mortality rates. Eventually this yeah. is going to pass. But I think we can do it. I think we can pass the torch in a more thoughtful way if we face up to what we're trying to create, which is a change in our civic culture. Uh, we're trying to encourage the idea that everybody between the ages of 18 and 24 should give a, try to give at least a year back to their community in some fashion to serve. We need to, you know, we need to create a culture which encourages service and leadership, and ultimately, that's what leadership is. It is about service to others, uh, and we're, you know, we're not doing that right now. As, as, as you all say, as Bill just said, you know, there are too many older people who are clinging to power as if, you know, that's the only thing that gives them grace. It is, it's, it's a more, I think it's a more dignified thing to say, okay, I've reached an age, I'm, I'm a CEO of a, of a significant company, you reach this age of 70, and we ought to change our board, and we ought to get a new CEO and move on. That's a natural time to do that. And in business, that occurs widely, that there comes a time when people feel that you, it's time to, to, to give, give up the reins. And it happens smoothly in the business community. We're having a really hard time doing it in the political community because people do can cling to power. Um, I want to talk about the title of your book, David. Sure. Because I thought it was, I loved it. Hearts oh, Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. There's such yeah. passion in yeah. those words, such a sense of commitment. And what I, the reason I want to talk about it is because, as we've already said, one of the things you discuss in the book is how young people have to find their moral compass. Yes. They have to uh, learn what it means to have a sense uh, of duty. And the title of your book comes from someone who did just that. And so before we have to take a break, I would love for you to tell the story of where sure. that title comes from. <laughs> Thank you. You can open up the cupboard and let me tell some stories. That's great. Encourage me to tell some stories. I'd love to. Um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., came from a prominent family in Boston. His father was a, a physician recognized around the city. This was way, way back in um, the mid-19th uh, century. He had a son named uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. Um, at 23, when Holmes, Jr. was 23, uh, Abraham Lincoln, then president, issued a call for volunteers, the first volunteers in the Civil War. And Holmes, like the sons of many prominent families, could easily have ducked the call to service. Um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's father, for example, found a way to duck which T.R. was always uh, embarrassed about. Um, but nonetheless, Holmes said, I'm going to volunteer. He, he, he got in front of the line, and he put on a uniform, and he went out to battle. And three times he was grievously wounded in the war, um, you know, at, at places like Antietam. Um, and he was, left for, he was left for dead on the battlefield, miraculously recovered. with his. I think his father went and found him um, and helped him to get back on his feet. Um, so, so 20, and then, then he went on to become a, a distinguished jurist. He was on the Supreme Court, named by Teddy Roosevelt, um, and, and he had he was a well-respected gentleman. Uh, but 20 years after the Civil War was over, he gave a speech at Memorial Day to look at, to tell people and reflect upon how the war changed his generation, how it how it uh, what, you know what 
how it formed people in his generation as it did. And he said, it is given to man to uh, to live in the passions of his time. It's really important that you live in the passions of his time. Uh, and he said, he said he came from a you know a generation that that had lost so many people. But he said, we in my generation had the great good fortune to to live through the passions of the Civil War, and and we look back upon it as a time when our hearts were touched with fire. Oh, that, I that agree with Bill. Just... That's that phrase is. I, it's that Bill. That, that that jumped out at me when I read it, and that's why I was eager to. I'm happy to put it out as a cover for the book. Well, it's also a perfect example of what you're hoping that you and others who are working in leadership programs yeah. can imbue in the younger generation. Yeah. How do we? How do we build fire well, I th- I in think, the people yeah. who are going to take over? I, I think we need a cadre of people who t- uh, who are older who take responsibility for helping the younger generation see what's possible to encourage them, but in, in some cases to help them philanthropically. Um, you know, there are ways to do that. I mean, look at Sam Nunn's daughter. Now she got into the uh, nonprofit world and made such a difference, um, uh, and and continues to make a difference. So there is, I think, there is much that we can share. Uh, I, I, I teach. I have the privilege to teach in a classroom. I've been doing that for about 20, 25 years. That's because it was the experience of being in the classroom that really encouraged me to write the book because I was seeing so many young people who were so promising and they needed, but they needed to be, you know, they, 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 they need to be nourished. They need to be supported by the rest of us. Um, and I, I think that's what we're beginning to see about what difference we can make for those of us who are older. We, when we say passing the torch, it, it, it is about passing the torch of leading big organizations or leading organizations. But there's still this time, this need for those of us who have have been in the arena to to uh, you know we have at least have, hopefully have a little wisdom and we have experience and we can help them see see the way forward um, and encourage them to see the way forward. And, uh, you oh, know, you can, I, you can I, adopt, you know, it's especially important for women to help the older women to help younger women, because there are a number of things you have to show, you have to navigate around, uh, as, as Patricia, I'm, I think, could tell us um, in, in, in detail. Um, but I, I think that, you know, there was a time when older women, when they, when they gained stature and they were in major positions, they didn't want to help the younger women. They, they, was, they said basically... Um, it was really hard for me. It ought to be hard for them. They'll be better for it. Um, and I think now, uh, increasingly, um, well, uh, as Madeleine Albright used to say, um, there's a place in hell for, for a woman who won't help another woman. Um, let's do this. Um, David Gergen is our guest. Uh, uh, Patricia Murphy and I are going to continue talking with him. He has encouraged us to open the pages of his new book, Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made, and talk about some of the stories he shares. We're going to do that right after these brief messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
Patricia Murphy and I are joined today by David Gergen, advisor to four United States presidents, uh, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton. Um, in fact, I guess, uh, Patricia, David Gergen is kind of like the perfect person on this show because you know that for all the years we've been on the air, we always like to talk with people who are smart but not particularly partisan. They work across lines and think about uh, issues and policy rather than partisanship. Gergen's a great example of that, Patricia. Well, and most important in this case, I think, is someone who's really been in the room where it happened. You know, yeah, you, can't, oh, be, you sure. can't be David Kirkin's resume. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, yeah, uh, David, uh, let me, if I can, um, I want to share with you uh, or ask you about, well, FDR is one of the people you come yes. back to on a number yeah. of occasions in the book to talk about um, what it takes to be a great leader. And I think one of my favorite passages is that you quote from uh, Ted Morgan's biography of yeah. FDR. And do you mind if I, I'm going to read what he No, uh, please wrote, do. I think it's very out. rich. I, I, I signed this, this uh, Ted Morgan chapter to uh, my classes. Oh, well, that's perfect. Okay, so here's what Morgan said about Roosevelt and adversary. And adversity. Although his legs remained withered, his spirit triumphed. It was this spiritual battle, this refusal to accept defeat, this ability to learn from adversity that transformed him from a shallow, untested, selfishly ambitious, and sometimes unscrupulous young man into the mature figure we know as FDR. And, of course, he became one of the greatest leaders in American history. Dave. Yeah. Isn't that a wonderful passage? I, yeah. I think that's uh, yeah. that's so well written, and I think captures FDR so well. It it comes within a larger context of uh, how psychology has changed and what, how we think about uh, maturing into leadership. You know, for for a long, long time in its early years, psychology was always about finding what's wrong with somebody and trying to correct it. Uh, then along came some uh, psychologists led by a fellow named Martin Seligman, who's uh, uh, I think at Carnegie Mellon or University of Pennsylvania, but in any event, did a lot of work on positive psychology, and that is, how can we find ways that will bolster you in your life, that will that will have give you a more positive outlook, and then that will help take care of some of the negative problems. Um, and the, in particular, there was a, there's been a lot of study about crucible moments, as we now call them, moments that happen in a person's life which uh, can transform them. It's, they're, they're adverse moments People, when you get knocked down really, really hard, and you may not get back up. And that's what happened to FDR. He was a... Um, when he was when he was a young man, uh, he was a sort of a dandy, and and his his, his family used to call him Bernie Wooster, um, who was a British character, um, a, a figure of fun in, in Britain. Um, but a lot, when he was, and then FDR was nominated to be as a vice presidential candidate on the Democratic ticket in 1920. They went down to defeat, but he. Had ran for national office, and he was looked like he was a major, major star on the horizon. But in 1921, a year later, he was struck down by polio, uh, and it was one of the worst diseases, one of the worst scourges of his time. There was a sense then in the 1920s that polio was actually um, uh, could pass from one person to the next. You know, it's a little bit like what we're going through with the pandemic now. Um, and Roosevelt was sort of, sort of determined; he couldn't walk. He woke up one day and he, could, he just couldn't, he couldn't, he, his, his legs had gone out from under him. 
Uh, and he tried for a year after he tried for seven straight years to learn how to walk again. He thought he could, but he never could. He never could. But he, the, the experience of dealing with it uh, goes to what Seligman argues about crucible moments, and that is that some people, when they hit, hit crucible moments, they go to pieces and they never recover. There's another group of people who they get hit really hard. They, they're down and out. It takes them about a year, and they eventually get back to where they were, but it takes about a year to get there. And then there's a third group. The third group is the one that FDR belongs to, and that is people who who get knocked down. They have the resilience to, to get back up. And then very, very importantly, they're transformed by the experience of fighting adversity into, into asking, what can they do in the rest of their lives that will make a difference in the world? And they and they they take on moral purpose, and that they come back they come back stronger than they were. Uh, the, the, Nelson Mandela is an example of that. Um, you know, when he was sent to Robben Island as a, as a young man, that was a hugely adverse um, um, it, it, moment for for Mandela. Um, but in in while he was in prison, and he, Mandela prison, as some people called it, he changed. He became much stronger internally, and it gave him strength for the journey, so to speak. Uh, and I, I think that that whole idea that that adversity can give you strength for the journey is one that I think that all of us ought to embrace. Just because you get knocked down does not mean you're down and out forever. You can come back and actually do bigger things. That's what FDR did, and I think you see that and say that more modern times with John Lewis, and he, who remains such a pivotal figure now, an iconic figure in this country. He's sort of like this, you know, second only to uh, to Martin Luther King in terms of his influence now upon the young, uh, people who were just, you know, followed his life with great, great interest and intensity. And he became a sort of a heroic figure in this country. Um, but a lot of that came because he got, you know, the attack he underwent when he had a concussion on, on uh, Pettus Bridge. And it looked like he might die out there. That was a crucible moment for John Lewis, and uh, he made a real it made a real difference. John John McCain, another person when he when he was taken POW, you know he had been sort of a playboy, uh, and and he wasn't a serious student when he uh, when he went to West Point, um, but he changed when he got in Hanoi Hilton, and he became a much much stronger person, even though his body has paid a huge price. Um, he, he, you know, he just he lost use of some of his limbs, uh, but he he came back as a moral figure, a very independent voice. He was one of the few people willing to cross the aisle and work with uh, people on the other party, and got major things done. And we all now look upon him as one of the few last last heroes we've had. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is another one who is a um, you know she she went through huge adversity. Uh, herself, when when her husband, they were in law school together, uh, he came down with cancer. She picked up the reins and, and did did his work, did his schoolwork for him, as well as doing her own schoolwork, as well as looking after children. I mean, there were a lot of things that hit her all at the same time, uh, and she it's, it's a miracle that she became who she was. But she got this kind of quality about her that from adversity uh, that gave her strength, gave her inner strength. Um, and I must say, I think that's one of the. You can you can argue one way or the other about Joe Biden as president, but I do think he has some inner strength that came from the adversity in his life when he lost his wife and his child in an automobile yeah. accident, oh, and then that lost makes, his yeah. son. 
Yeah, yeah. and then lost Patricia his Exactly, exactly. I'm sorry, David, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, 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 no problem. I just, I, but there, there are a number of examples now that I think are inspiring that for the rest of us, when we hit really bad moments, don't give up, you know, you you can find your way back. And by the way, you may find something better because it's a struggle. In this same section of the book about adversity, what I think is so effective is you actually list the attributes that that kind of adversity gives, gives I, guess, I guess, people in the public sphere or even the private sphere, gives them these attributes that makes them better leaders. And you said yes. it's stoicism, hardiness, yeah. adaptability. And one that I think is so underappreciated in leadership is a sunny temperament. And you yes. said that for mm-hmm. FDR in particular, he had a visit with uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. And after yes. FDR left, Holmes said, called him a second-class intellect, but a first-class temperament. Yes, yes. Isn't it nice? And I think that speaks to the qualities one looks for in leadership. You, you have to be smart. You have to be capable. You have to be on top of your game. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to go into some big uh, Ivy League school. Uh, you know, all of us can serve. As Martin Luther King, I, I quoted him in the book, you know, all of us have a chance to serve others. And no matter what, what's your background, no matter where you went to school, uh, you know, we're all in the position. We're, we we have the grace to do that. But let, let me let me come back to FDR just for a moment on the sunny temperament because I think it's so classic. <clears throat> you know, guys, as I said, he couldn't he couldn't he couldn't walk, and yet when he went to give speeches on on stages, well, the way they worked it out was he, that the, the Secret Service would bring him up to the back of a the stage. They put on his. Um, he he had leg braces, a very heavy leg braces he needed. And he put the leg braces on and stand him up. And then he would go across the stage, and it looked like he was walking across the stage. He, his, and he would be smiling. He would be looking like having the time of his life. Uh, and But in truth, he wasn't walking. He couldn't walk. What he could do was swivel. And so he, what he would, what the FDR would do to get across that stage, he would have a person on either side of him. Usually, his son was on one side, and he would, he would, FDR would put one hand on his son's arm and grab hold, and then he would have somebody on the other side, and he would, FDR would hold a cane, he'd have a cane to walk, but the other person would be there to, in case he started slipping, and so he would swivel across the stage. For all, it looked like it looked like he had the time of his life, but when he got to the and when he got to the microphone, he was sweating profusely from the effort mm-hmm. it took, and frequently he had to dig in so much into his son's arm that his son's arm was bleeding pretty badly by the time they got to the stage, and but for all that time, FDR led the country to believe he, he could walk. And he had conquered polio, and in some ways, people voted for him because they said a man who can overcome polio and walk again is a man who can get the country off its back and have us walk again. And it, and it worked for him. And if you go to if you go to the FDR um, library in uh, on the Hudson River up up from New York, it's it's a wonderful library because it's so it's so modest. It's not you know these great great big libraries we build now today. It's, it's quite different back then. Um, but but you find that his uh, his time and his time in, in in back home always nourished him. He went home. He went back to the Hudson Hudson River place time and time again because when he came back when he came back from that he felt he again felt refreshed and ready to go. Uh, David, by the way, we should point out that uh, Patricia Murphy worked for one of those uh, people with a sunny disposition. Max Senator Max Cleland, 
was oh, yes, always, yes. always upbeat. He was one of the most popular people in the U.S. Senate, not because necessarily of his great intellect or all that he accomplished yes. there, but because he was such a lovely human being. All of yeah. us who know him and Patricia knew him very well understand that. To be yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you raised that that point, and that is, and he is another example. And but but it it should be as an inspiration for the rest of us. Uh, you know, what, who was what, one of the most interesting stories in our own time right now is unfolding in Ukraine with with this fellow Zelensky. Uh, you know, who came, who was a came out of the entertainment industry and had very little political experience, ran for office out of nowhere, managed to win, was actually not a very good uh, president of his country. They were in a lot of trouble until the Russians invaded. And then he, he, Zelensky has transformed himself in the midst of all these troubles into a real hero. Um, he, he, every night he goes on TV to talk to people in his country. It's like FDR's fireside chats on radio. They, they, keep people, they, they keep people engaged in the great struggle of their time. Uh, and you have to... David, I got it. The question... Finish that sentence and then I've got to get to a break. The question is, where are our Zelenskys? We'll come back to it. I want to talk more, but thank you for giving me a chance to get to the break. We'll come back with that and a lot more in our last segment in just a moment. Patricia Murphy and I have a few minutes left to talk with David Gergen, whose new book is Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. Patricia, we could do, I wish we could do three hours talking to Gergen about his stories about working with those four presidents. That's not what this show is, though, unfortunately. David, I lit up when I saw one of the people you singled out for leadership qualities, Pat Summit, the great, great coach of the University of Tennessee basketball, women's basketball team. I will never forget taking my daughter to see when she was like eight years old, to see Pat <laughs> Summit and, and the volunteers play against Georgia Tech. My daughter was truly enraptured to see Pat Summit in action. Why is she in your book? Well, she was such an inspiring figure, and I think she's one of these iconic um, uh, uh, folks who comes along occasionally. and. Many many people who have a chance to you know be in her shadow and watch her work with the uh, with the young women she was coaching, you know, came away with this the sense that this is a very very special uh, person, and I also thought it was important um, just as we need more diversity in our workplaces, I think we need more diversity in our hall of heroes and heroines, um, people who are not often recognized for how how much of a difference they can make, uh, and she did in the lives of. Uh, of just hundreds upon hundreds of, of young women. What's notable about her in, in particular is how many of the young women she co- she coached went on to become coaches themselves. She, I, I think that's one of the marks of a leader is that the that you mentor and inspire others to, to follow in footsteps similar to yours, not the same, but similar, uh, that you can make a real, that's one of the ways you can make a real difference. You radiate out a sort of heat and warmth and, and sort of a sense of, goodwill, uh, that it can inspire a lot, a lot more people beyond yourself. You also say that she empowered uh, people who yes. uh, were going to play for her. You say that when she interviewed a potential player, um, after they talked for a while, the last question Pat Summit would ask is, what do you think our team needs? And turn to, yeah. the, to the recruit. For, that's a wonderful trait in and of itself. It's yeah. empowering. Oh, oh I, think, I think that's right. At the same time, she was tough. 
You know, she 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 expected you to play hard. She played you play to win. Um, and I was quite taken by the by the uh, story of her. You know, her, her she felt on one game um, her t- team had really given up too easily. It, it's, they weren't doing the kind of things they they should be doing. She was really really disturbed, and they they had an eight hour bus ride back to campus. Um, and she put them on the bus, and she refused to stop the bus all the way the whole eight hours. She never gave them a restroom break. She said, "You got to learn to, to suck it up." You know, basically, you got to <laughs> you, you got to be tougher. <laughs> there you are. Patricia? <laughs> now, yeah. speaking of asking for people's input, I was really struck. You had a note at the beginning of the book thanking the young people who read this book, yes, who were early yes. readers of the book, and gave you feedback. I would love to hear what their feedback was and if it changed anything about the book that you thought you had finished. Well, I, 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 I did find, um, I, I asked several young people, <coughs> excuse me, who were college age, to look at it because I, I think one of the, the, frankly, one of the challenges that those of us who are older have and, and talking to younger people is trying to understand their world from their perspective. Uh, and it, you know, and that that young people have evolved a great deal with the way the issues are discussed on college campuses. There's far more sensitivity on college campuses than there once were, on especially on these racial issues uh, and on sort of cultural issues. Um, and I and I do think that those of us who are sort of mentor or coaches or teachers um, have to have to find ways to communicate. And to understand, and 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 one of the the other coaches I've always admired, Coach K at Duke. I'm 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 from North Carolina, from Durham. So Coach K is quite, from his time at, at uh, Duke, is quite special to me. Um, but what was interesting about him, you know, he's an older man now. He's in late sixties, I think, early seventies as a coach. And what does he do? He hires some of his former players to be coaches at the in the mid level area. So there are people he hires in their 30s or 35, 40, and they they were people he could talk to them because they were he he was still close in age to the people at 35 and 40. He could talk to them and they would then pass it on to the next generation down, and be able to translate Coach K to the younger people. And similarly, the younger people communicated up through, through those mid mid level coaches to Coach K, and they could translate it for him. So. I think there's much to be said about um, uh, about trying to understand different perspectives and be respectful. If we're ever going to get out of this mess it's, that we're in right now, it's going to be in part because we show more respect for people who are not like us. Um, diversity, as Bill Clinton liked to say, diversity is, should not be our enemy. Diversity should be our friend. Uh, something that also um, really separates this book, I think, from other leadership books is that you have an executive summary at the end where you list yes. the 20 takeaways, yes. um, which I love. But it has some really actionable advice for, especially for younger people, have three objectives early, find yes. your true north. Um, what are a few of the other takeaways you want people to leave this conversation with? Well, I, I do think it's to, to simplify things a great deal. Uh, there, what we call the three C's that young people ought to be seeking out. First of all, your your capability. Uh, you know, your just your skill sets that you that you need to sharpen, uh, especially the capacity. How to, how do you manage up? 
uh, you, how you, most of us have bosses for a long, long periods of time in our lives. How do you manage your boss? How do you lead your boss? Interesting challenges. Then the challenge becomes how do you lead others in your organization who, who are on your team? That presents one, a different set of challenges. And then it's extremely important, how do you manage people outside your orbit and on different teams altogether? Increasingly, leadership is about collaboration and not about some great man or great woman. It is about how people can work together across across barriers. So that's part of it. But I think it's also very, very important. There are two other Cs. One is courage, uh, and one, the other is character. You need both. You know, um, uh, Churchill believed that courage was the single most important attribute of a leader. Without it, nothing else happened. Courage is extremely important. But the quality of your character is also very, very important in terms of how you how you inspire others, how do you mobilize others. Leadership is about mobilizing others in the pursuit of shared goals. That's that's the definition I've drawn over time. Leadership, a leader is someone who who mobilizes others in the pursuit of shared goals. Character is essential to persuade others to do something. They've got to know you're telling them the truth. They've got to know you're in their corner. They've got to know you're you're going to be reliable. What you believe and say on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays won't become how you change your mind on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. You've got to be consistent um, uh, for yeah. people to, to to come and believe in you. And by the way, I also and I'd love to talk about this a little more. I think you also need a sense of humor. It's really important uh, to get oh, through life. Perfect. Lincoln understood that perfect. so well. Uh, David, we're we're so short on time, but I want to very quickly talk about you. Talk about two very brief stories. You sure. ask in this book, does le- do leaders really matter? And then you tell yeah. us two examples. You tell yeah. us the story of Churchill in New York, um, like people when we go to England looking the wrong way to cross yeah. the street and almost yep. being hit by a car and killed. Uh, yep. And then you tell us FDR in Miami. Uh, was the tar- was the uh, supposed to be the target of an anarchist uh, who yes. fired at him, and instead it hit, I think it was Anton Cermak, the mayor of Chicago, yeah. who died. Exactly and right. you point exactly out right. that because those two men lived, they yes. probably had more to do with the fact that that the Allies won the European war than yes. any other figure. Leadership uh, matters. That's the big point uh, of your uh, book. Absolutely. And, it, and, and what we know is that the, if Churchill had died that night, and he was hit, uh, almost died, if, but had he died, the, the alternatives in Britain when it came to making decisions about the Nazis, Britain would have given up. They would have thrown in the towel. Churchill was the one that talked Britain back off the cliff. Um, and same thing with FDR. The alternative to FDR um, was a, was a uh, uh, former governor in, uh, I think, Texas. And he he just was not capable of leading us through the Depression or, or the war. So the, the quality of leaders does matter, and it matters greatly. Okay. Which side you're on, by the way, whether you're on the working for the good guys or the bad guys? Well, clearly, okay. I've got to interrupt you. I wish we sure. could talk. I know you've been very generous with your time. Frankly, I wish we could continue because this has been a wonderful conversation. Patricia Murphy, thank you for joining me. David Gergen, your book "Hearts Touched with Fire: How Great Leaders Are Made." Uh, what a wonderful read. Again, well, David, thank, thank, thank you, you Bill, and thank you, Patricia, us. for joining us. It was a great. I I love the conversation. Wish we could talk longer, but I, <laughs> I, I, I I leave I leave heartened for the days ahead.
Sounds great. Thank you so much. Um, That's it for us today. We're back again with a new show tomorrow. Uh, In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.